is to get lots of light, preferably outside because it's a lot brighter. And that really regulates our circadian rhythm and helps us go to sleep at a decent time. And for those night owls, it can shift the circadian rhythm earlier by getting lots of light in that morning, in the morning when you first wake up. And then potentially blocking light at night. So trying to, for all of us, we know, put away the electronic devices about an hour before bed. But potentially for those night owls, having blue light blocking glasses may be important to block out the blue light that can suppress our melatonin and make it more difficult to fall asleep. So that's a tip for some of those night owls. But in general, if you have the luxury to create your own schedule, um, I would say really try and just sleep more in line with your circadian rhythm if you can. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Eat Realty Heal podcast. I am Nicolette Richet, your host of the Eat Realty Heal show, and I am so excited to have Dr. Amy Bender on our show today. Dr. Bender is a senior research scientist at the Calgary Counseling Center, and she's also an adjunct professor, assistant professor of kinesiology at the University of Calgary. Now, Dr. Bender received her PhD and Master's of Science degrees in experimental psychology from Washington State University, where she specialized in sleep EEG. Now, with all of this research, all of this knowledge, she is a sleep specialist, and she's on our show today to talk about the importance of sleep, particularly in athletes, but really everything that she knows that applies to athletes applies to everyone, to new moms, to the elderly, to children, to people of all ages, walks of life, to everyone. Because as we all know, you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. You have to eat your way into health. And then adding movement is really important. But the one piece that people often take for granted and often abuse is sleep. And this is why we brought Dr. Amy Bender onto our show to talk about how vital sleep is for our health, for regeneration, for rebuilding our body, for repairing our body. Because when we sleep, it's really the only time that our body is truly repairing and healing. So it's of vital importance that you learn the art, the science, and learn how to master sleep. Because ultimately, that's what's going to keep us living longer, living healthier when it's coupled with the right diet and exercise. Now, I know from my experience, when my clients turn to food as medicine and they start eating well, they end up automatically sleeping well. And I discovered Dr. Bender on the Outrun Rare um, website that was developed by its founder, Dave Proctor, who is running and cycling across Canada to raise awareness about rare diseases. And I love that he hired Dr. Bender to be on his team to help him as he was running 100 kilometers a day across Canada to beat a world record of 72 days of running straight across Canada. And he hired Dr. Bender to be his sleep specialist. And of course, many of you already know that I am gonna be running and cycling across Canada in 75 days so that I can stop and meet with indigenous communities 
physicians groups, and youth to uncover the barriers to accessing clean, real food, to uncover the barriers to the knowledge around food as medicine, and to helping people remember that food is medicine and that it has the power to not only prevent chronic diseases, but also to stop, to arrest, and then reverse chronic diseases. And these are diseases that are caused by our lifestyle, which really represents 95 to 97% of all the chronic illnesses that are out there. Only 3% of chronic diseases are actually genetic, and that's including cancers. So if you're out there and you've heard yourself say in the past little while, well, I have diabetes because my parents have diabetes, or I have cancer because my parents have cancer, or I have heart disease because my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, um, my siblings all have heart disease. Well, you might actually be saying that the only thing that is truly passed down and hereditary is the lifestyle, actually not the genes themselves. And that's been proven out over and over again through evidence-based science, evidence-based medicine to show us that, you know what, it's really about changing the lifestyle. And one of the important factors that we need to change in addition to food, in addition to exercise, is sleep. So what Amy has done as well, which is what I really love, is that she's helped develop the only validated sleep screening tool for athletes and has implemented sleep optimization strategies for numerous Canadian Olympic and professional teams. Her current focus today is on how sleep and exercise interventions can also help improve mental health outcomes. As many of you know, my ex-husband took his own life. I have um, been witness to friends who have been attacked by individuals that have mental health issues because they were depressed, had anxiety, suffered from panic attacks, and were put on everyday mental health medications, antidepressants, antipsychotics, and actually became violent as a result. I am privy to friends who have family members that have taken their own lives as a result of the mental health um, medications that they've been prescribed by their medical practitioner. And they went from being thriving communities or thriving individuals in their community to one day, you know, after a few weeks of being on their medications to taking their own life, despite there being no other evidence of wanting to commit suicide. And we know a lot of the side effects of these medications are hallucinations and, um, and, and uh, multiple, um, multiple brain activities that look like psychotic episodes, momentary psychotic episodes. So I'm on a mission to help people understand that they can actually eliminate their depression, their panic attacks, their anxiety disorders, strictly by using food. When the body is neutrified, the brain is neutrified, the brain can then fire appropriately and there's clearer thinking, the brain fog lifts, the depression lifts, and people are actually able to make better decisions as to how to then move forward with managing their lives, which often don't involve the medications or if my clients are on medications, they get off the medications. So I've been doing this work for the last 13 years, teaching people about using food as medicine. We know the ability of exercise to improve uh, moods. 
But what a lot of people are not realizing is that food is the number one factor that you need to integrate into your life. Healthy food, clean food, real food, none of the processed, refined, um, ultra-processed foods that contain the refined oils, the refined salts, the refined sugars, the refined ingredients, the preservatives. Once you eliminate all of those and get an abundance of uh, fruits, vegetables, legumes, grains in their whole entire form and start eating those. It's incredible to see how the gut microbiome shifts, the body heals, and then mental health status improves as well. So on our show, we're going to be chatting about that with Dr. Amy Bender. Uh, also note that she's a former um, college basketball athlete as well. She has completed an Ironman back in 2009, and she is fit and healthy as she chases around her three young children. So this woman has experienced it all on all sides of being a researcher, a scientist, a doctor, a mother, an athlete, and she's here to teach all of us how to use sleep as medicine. Welcome everyone to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and on today's show, we have Dr. Amy Bender. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here as well, uh, especially because of the fact that you are a sleep expert in the world of athletic performance. And that's not a topic that we've covered on our show yet. And I think it's one topic that sleep in general that, you know, often people overlook when they're trying to heal themselves when they're trying to take care of their health issues, when they're trying to understand what is going on with their bodies, why aren't things syncing up and aligning, and they'll stay up all night long Googling, researching, as opposed to doing the one thing they probably should be doing, which is getting sleep. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So how did you get into the world of sleep? I know that you studied, you did your master's in psychology as well as your PhD, is that correct? Yes, yes. I, uh, I started off actually as a sleep technologist. So I was working at just, well, I guess before that, I um, went to my aunt's sleep lab. She was a sleep technologist at the time and I was kind of looking to transition careers and she brought me to her lab where she was working, um, where she would hook up patients with electrodes to monitor the brain waves, monitor heart, leg rhythms, muscle movement during the night, and then was able to score those channels to calculate what stage of sleep the person was in and how many different potential breathing episodes they were having during the night. So that really got me hooked. I ended up volunteering at any sleep lab that I could. I went and I um, volunteered, just observed overnight, watching them, watching what the sleep technologists did, and ended up landing a job at the Sleep and Performance Research Center as the lead sleep technologist. And from there, I, I was a sleep tech for probably four years or so, and where I was teaching research assistants how to hook up the participants with all the electrodes, scoring the stages for sleep, and then decided I really wanted to take it a step further, ended up getting my master's and PhD in experimental psychology with a focus on sleep EEG and the impact of sleep deprivation on cognitive performance. 
And then after my PhD, I ended up doing a postdoc fellowship at the University of Calgary, working with Canadian Olympic team athletes and trying to optimize their sleep for better performance. Currently, I am the senior research scientist at Calgary Counseling Center, where we're trying to use sleep interventions for better mental health. Which is, I think, what we need now more than ever in midst COVID, when we have so many people that are completely out of sorts and out of rhythm with their, you know, their normal life and trying to find that new normal. Um, I imagine that now more than ever, we need to probably clone you and, <laughs> and the work that you are doing to help more people understand how they can help all these people in amidst this COVID crisis. Um, have you seen right now, just in the work that you're doing, have you seen a spike or a rise in mental health issues as a result of COVID? Or is that something that we have to wait to sort of find out? Well, um, we were looking at the data because we, we transitioned when the um, stay-at-home order took place here in mid-March in Canada. Um, we transitioned to all online counseling. So uh, it was a very fast transition for us, but we were able to, it, it went rather smoothly. So we we're able to collect data during the time, obviously pre stay at home order and um, during the stay at home order and post stay at home order. And what we were finding actually is that levels of distress were lowered during the stay at home order which was very interesting to us. And obviously there were some people that did have higher levels of distress. So it wasn't a, everyone had lower levels, but on average we found that there were uh, lower levels of distress, less reports of suicide concern, less reports of substance abuse. Um, but now we are starting to see, I think the aftermath now uh, over here, where you know schools are in session we're we're starting to get back to normal up here in canada uh and i mean you're from canada too so yeah. so you kind of know but um we're starting to see more people coming in for counseling and virtually so we are starting to see a little bit of the aftermath now that we're getting back to more of our normal um new normal i would say Right. And with the, with that transition from, um, you know, the COVID staying at home, the lockdown to then phase two and people getting out and about, um, did you, you know, do you think it's because the result of people just trying to balance this new life or like, have you come to any conclusions as to why you're seeing um, perhaps a return to previous rates or something closer to that? Yeah, we haven't we haven't explored that too much. Um, I think during the stay-at-home order, there were less obligations for people, so that mm -hmm. could have been a reason why there were less um, levels of distress overall. Um, and just being able to spend more time with family potentially may be a reason for that. And now that we're having to commute back into work. I'm, I'm still working from home, which is nice, but a lot of people are having to commute in. And so a lot of those stressors that are occurring and then on top of the pandemic, I think could be a reason for 
people needing more counseling during this time. And I think that we're, that we haven't even seen the peak. I feel like um, that we're probably going to be busier and busier um, as we get back more to normal and then combine that with the pandemic, um, maybe a reason for people needing to uh, seek out counseling. Yeah, no, anecdotally, even just for myself, I mean, you're a mother of three, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm a mother of three as well, and I know the minute school returned back, you know, we were like, oh, this is going to be exciting, because I've been working at home, juggling kids and, and work, and I'm sure you have as well, and then all of a sudden, going back to school, we're adding a whole new layer of, like, packing lunches and trying to fill out school forms and managing our kids' expectations at school with wearing masks or not wearing masks and, and everything. So I know for myself, my sleep had went from being spectacular throughout COVID to all of a sudden now being, you know, frazzled and going to bed later and, and knowing that I need to check that as well as my training increases. Um, and are you finding the same for yourself, just anecdotally from you or... How do you manage your sleep? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, my youngest, so he's three, um, and we just moved him out of his crib into a big boy bed. Um, so we were struggling a lot with that, uh, him waking up and, you know, but we're actually getting through that. So that's good. We're getting back to more normal. But yes, I mean, more obligation, um, having to pack the lunches, um, you know, making sure the kids have masks because where we're at, the kids wear, uh, need to have two masks at school. They wear it during recess, you know, so just um, also, you know, reassuring the kids about COVID and, and how that, how that works um, is another added stressor, I would say. Um, I have so many questions for you, which, you know, I know we only have an hour together and normally we have a long form podcast, which ends up being about an hour and a half to two hours. But um, I, I definitely, the one question I do have for you before we jump more into the science about it and then transition into talking about sleep and athletes, because I know that's important topic too for for so many people, especially in the Whistler area, which is, you know, the outdoor rec capital of the world. And, but what is it like for you to have so much knowledge about sleep? And then obviously every night, knowing that, you know, your sleep's probably going to change with having, you know, your youngest being three. Do you ever, is it ever sort of self-sabotaging having too much information? Yeah, that's a, that's funny because I do, I do have all of that knowledge at my fingertips, but yet I'm not able to control a lot of times whether or not I get a good night's sleep. Um, but for me, I, I, I take a more, I guess, conservative approach in, I know sleep is important. It's important for our health. It's important for our mental health. But I, I feel like our body can recover from, from these, you know, occasional nights of sleep deprivation. And by the way, uh, there was one study that showed that it takes six years to get back to pre-pregnancy sleep levels. So kids can be a challenge when it comes to sleep. Um, but when you look at, our, you know, do parents, are parents more at risk for quicker mortality? You know, we don't see that in the, in the research. So I feel like 
our body and our brain can adjust to acute bouts of sleep deprivation. So for me, I try and um, I, I take a bit of a hands-off approach. So a lot of times if I know I'm gonna be going to bed late or something along those lines, I won't look at the clock. I won't try and calculate my sleep. I try and um, take a more relaxed approach for myself when it comes to trying to optimize my sleep. And that is really good advice. And I'm going to take that advice for sure, because I have read a lot about sleep as well and understand the importance of it, um, but def definitely haven't dived into the research uh, you know, as deeply as you have. So I like that more hands-off approach. So you were an athlete um, previously or still? I... I well, so I played college basketball. I played, um, or I did an Ironman in two thousand nine. I did some mountaineering. I'm still an athlete, but not in that capacity. So currently, I'm doing some running um, uh, three or four times a week. I I do some running. I do hiking with my family. I do stand up paddleboarding. So nothing nothing too competitive at this point right and was it that that um being an athlete that helped you transition into also working with athletes and around sleep and enhancing their performance because i think that that is such a fascinating career to be in and just curious about you transitioning to that yes well i noticed for myself um so i played college basketball in the early 2000s so sleep wasn't a big deal at that point when it came to performance but you know my coaches would say make sure you get a good night's sleep not even and that was pretty much it you know um so i felt like there was a lack of information getting to the athletes um so a lack of awareness when it came to sleep and the benefits on performance. So that was really one of the drivers that wanted to get me working with athletes and to just being an athlete myself, I've always been interested in sport. Right. And so tell us about the difference between, let's say, the need for an athlete to have a certain quality of sleep versus, you know, an average individual maybe who's walking five to 10,000 steps a day is, you know, does an athlete need more sleep? Um, is it a different quality of sleep? And, you know, what are you seeing amongst athletes basically in their sleep patterns? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think for the general adult, we want to aim for seven hours and up. So between some some regulation or some recommendations are between seven and nine hours. Um, I like to to make it more of seven and up. So trying to get a minimum of seven hours of sleep, which means you likely need to be in bed for more than seven hours, probably more like seven and a half hours because of the time it takes you to fall asleep and the time that you may wake up during the middle of the night. So really trying to prioritize that for the average adult is really important for um, teens. We're looking at more like eight, eight hours and up. And then the younger ages we go, the more sleep that we need. Um, when we're talking about athletes, I would say most sleep scientists working with athletes do you believe that they need more sleep than the average adult just because of the um 
the wear and tear on the body, the, um, you know, the mind, the cognitive uh, load that's going on, the, the physical load. So just needing more time to recover. But I would say, um, in general, athletes aren't, it's very difficult for them to achieve a high amount of sleep and a good quality of sleep. So that's what we see in the research a lot is that they aren't getting good quality sleep overall when we compare that to a control group or normal population. Um, we see more, more challenges for athletes. And why is that? Have you arrived at conclusions for that? Well, um, it could be, yeah, it could be the impact of exercise. Like with a large amount of exercise, we may need, um, there's more cortisol, there's more stress hormones being released. So potentially making it more difficult for athletes to fall asleep could be a reason for that. Um, it may be related to the timing of the exercise. So a lot of athletes potentially try and fit it in right be before bedtime, which can work for some individuals, but in a lot of people, it can cause problems. Um, it could be the personality type. I mean, if, if you have a type A personality, elite athlete, um, it could be that in those individuals, it's just more difficult to unwind. So having a pre-sleep routine would be important. Um, yeah, I think there could be a lot of reasons for why athletes aren't getting the sleep that they need. Yeah, that's an area that I'm really fascinated about um, just because I'll be running and cycling across Canada next year in a short period of time. So 75 days, so it's 100 kilometers a day, um, you know, no rest days and really everything is about using. Yeah, it's going to be super exciting and um, but also very scary as well because I'm really hoping my body holds up and, you know, doing everything nutritionally to make sure it does. But I have noticed for myself since starting when my training increased that definitely my sleep is not as consistent as it was um, prior to my intense training. And, um, and of course I analyze everything from a metabolic standpoint, like am I depleted in magnesium, not enough iodine, you know, what are the nutrients that are a factor? And do you do any research around that um, as far as nutrient intake and seeing, you know, the different diets that athletes have and how it affects their sleep? No, no, I don't do anything related to, um, I think we're a long ways away from that, actually. Mm -hmm. There's, there are some studies looking um, at nutrients and how it relates to sleep, but it's mostly in the general population. So, uh, such as fiber is good for deep sleep and carbs may help you fall asleep quicker. Uh, we haven't really quite gotten there with, with athletes. There's maybe been one to two studies looking at more of a correlational type study, not really looking at if you consume this food, how will it impact your sleep in this way? So I think we're, we're a long ways away from, from knowing that for sure. 
That's exciting though, because it just means there's a whole new area for people to study if anybody's listening out, you know, out there and, you know, happens to be in that world of research. Um, yeah, I did read one study where it said that, you know, when people, you know, they feel that hunger craving at night, it's not a bad thing to make a piece, you know, make some toast and have some carbs and it'll help them fall asleep. And, and the article was great about explaining the metabolic action that's taking place um, to help people sleep better. So, you know, where some people are like, do not eat after 7 PM, you know, this study was actually suggesting that it's okay to have, you know, you know, some carbs just before you fall asleep to help. So yeah, no, we definitely are a long way off to, I haven't seen a whole lot of studies. Now, you are working, you're on Dave Proctor's team, and for our audience out there, Dave is this incredible human being who has broke, you know, he's broken all these Guinness World Records, he's an ultra-endurance athlete, you know, for him, a fun day is to just go out and run 100 miles, or 100 kilometers in about four and a half hours, like his time his time is incredible incredible but he um is running across canada uh, also next year and to raise awareness for his company outrun rare um, which is to help bring awareness to the fact that we need canada needs a uh, a rare disease strategy we're the only country in the world this does not have a rare disease strategy uh, for individuals with these you know rare diseases so you're on his team. So what does that look like to be on his team? Like what work are you doing? And do I need to have you on my team as well? That's <laughs> <laughs> the question I have. <laughs> oh yeah. So, so yes, I was, I'm on Dave's team currently and um, was on his team in 20, I think it was 2018 when he attempted to run across Canada the first time. And um, it was it was very fascinating because he would call me up and say, "Hey, I'm really struggling to sleep. Um, you know, what should I be doing?" So I would give him strategies that he could do. And um, as a last resort, we had the option of him to take a sleep hypnotic. Mm -hmm. So that was that was in the strategy as well because I know for him he was very anxious about you know, making sure the routine is on time and then he's getting to this area for this event. And I think that really, really brought a lot of anxiety for him, making it a lot more challenging to fall asleep. So a few times he did use a hypnotic when he, when he needed to, and I'm not a medical doctor, but, um, what is a hypnotic? Have, oh, just a sleeping pill. Oh, I see. Okay. Fall asleep. Yeah. yeah. So, um, we had that set up so that he had that in case of those, those nights where he was very anxious. Um, another thing that we did for him was to make sure he had a really great sleep environment. And I think this is a tip for that anyone can use because it locks in automatic behavior in the future. So you just have to make this one-time choice of optimizing your sleep environment potentially getting blackout blinds, getting a nice eye mask, um, having earplugs that fit you properly, making sure you remove electronics out of the bedroom. And so for him, he was traveling in an RV. And so we really made sure that his sleep environment was dark, cool, and quiet was really key. And that locked in future behavior for four nights of sleep down the road where it's like, okay, well, my environment is, is good to go. Um, now I just have to 
work on, you know, being able to fall asleep and stuff. So I think that's a good, a good tip for people is to really optimize that sleep environment, make it like a cave, cool, dark, and quiet. And for me, it took me a while to realize this. I mean, I always heard that as a sleep hygiene tip. And it wasn't until I stayed at a cabin in uh, Golden, BC, where it was just dark. It was in the middle of winter. It was dark. It was cool. There were no sounds. It was just amazing. And I'm like, wow, I really have some work to do when I get home, you know, because it was like, all of us slept really, really well. So I think, I think that's key for people is to have a good sleep environment and that'll lock in automatic behavior down the road. Also for him, we were balancing uh, napping as well. So um, he, he obviously was running a lot, but he was starting earlier on in the day. So he did have a chunk of time during the afternoon to potentially recover uh, with with a short nap, under 30 minute nap. So that was a strategy for him to, to help recover. And then obviously the non-sleep strategies that help with recovery, nutrition and massage and those kind of things were, were helpful as well. Um, that's amazing. I love that, um, you know, you mentioned basically all the things that I'm not currently doing. So <laughs> I'm going to, the minute this podcast is over, I'm running to my bedroom and I'm going to like put up new curtains and, um, yeah, and definitely I do find that sleeping in a cooler environment and especially for women as well as their hormones are changing. I mean, I'm 45 years old. And so, uh, I am starting to notice there's a moment in the night where I get a little bit warmer and, you know, I don't know if that's perimenopause or, you know, my liver's acting up, who knows, you know, at this point without actually getting in and studying it, but um, a cooler environment definitely makes a world of difference. Um, and uh, the no noise thing is interesting because of the fact that I think we all have the option to sleep with earplugs. And, you know, I know people who do it very well, and they all often claim that they do have a great sleep. But, you know, we have the bear that's eating plums in our tree now. And, you know, <laughs> then the rooster that crows in the morning at very early time. So our sleep is very much disturbed. So I have to go take care of that for sure. Yeah. Now, I, I um, just to add on to that, I think. I actually found out recently that a lot of uh, hearing places, so that do hearing testing, can make custom earplugs for people. So that might be something to check out. Because I know for me, I I tried a lot of different earplugs, and there was like one pair that I yeah. found that actually fit properly. And um, I'm I'm definitely going to look into uh, getting a custom pair. And I think it was it was less than a hundred dollars. So. Um, you know, it may be worth it to have those custom earplugs to help you sleep better. Oh, I'm definitely getting those. I feel like I'm now just over that hump where my youngest is nine now. And, you know, she still might wake up, you know, and, and all of a sudden just be standing at the end of our bed in the middle of the night because she wants to just jump in with us. But we're definitely past the point where I feel like I need to listen to, you know, for the kids. Um, so I'm going to go get some of those earplugs. And um, with sleeping, is there a time of night that is better for somebody to go to bed? I know what, you know, we talk about living according to our circadian rhythm and 10 o'clock seems to be that number, but in the research, has that been proven out? 
that there's a better time to go to bed? I, it varies by people, honestly. There are so many individual differences and it depends on if you're a night owl or more of an early bird. And the best piece of advice would be to sleep more in line with your circadian rhythm if you can. So, um, for example, if I'm a night owl, let's say I like to go to bed after midnight, after 1 a.m., um, that's when my melatonin is being released. My melatonin is maybe being released one to two hours before I go to bed. So for a night owl to go to bed at 10 p.m., it's, it's not going to work. You know, it, it could actually lead to insomnia because they're just not tired at that time. So sleeping more in line with your circadian rhythm is, is a good piece of advice. And it is one of, along with quantity, which we already talked about, sleep quality, and then timing is the third factor for optimal sleep. Trying to sleep in line with your circadian rhythm is important. For a lot of night owls, that is pretty challenging because society makes us, you know, wake up early, have to be to work at a certain time, have to get the kids ready for, to get them off to school. So that can be challenging for night owls. And there are some things you can do if that's the case, uh, such as getting lots of light in the morning is gonna be important actually for everyone. That's one of my number one tips is to get lots of light, preferably outside because it's a lot brighter. And that really regulates our circadian rhythm and helps us go to sleep at a decent time. And for those night owls that can shift the circadian rhythm earlier by getting lots of light in that morning, in the morning when you first wake up, and then potentially blocking light at night. So trying to, for all of us, we know, put away the electronic devices about an hour before bed, but potentially for those night owls, having blue light blocking glasses may be important to block out the blue light that can suppress our melatonin and make it more difficult to fall asleep. So that's a tip for some of those night owls. But in general, if you have the luxury to create your own schedule, um, I would say really try and just sleep more in line with your circadian rhythm if you can. It just made me all of a sudden very excited for when my kids move out because I am a <laughs> night owl and it's been the one thing I've had to battle for sure. It's that I can easily, like my most creative time is 1am. Mm. Um, it's when, you know, I do my best work, write my best emails. Uh, I can do eight hours of work, I think, in the time between like 11 o'clock and 2am. Um that's awesome. Which is awesome, but not when you're up at, you know, 6.30 a.m. getting yeah. the kids ready for school. So it really doesn't work. So I do have to, I've had to force myself to um, go to bed early versus my husband, who's like 9.30 guy. Like 9.30, he's got his pajamas on and he's heading upstairs to read a little bit before bed. And, um, you know, and I'm the opposite. So that'll be interesting. Um you know, down the road when the kids do move out. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that you mentioned was the electronic devices as well. And is that mostly for the, um, for that blue light that's coming off the screens and how it stimulates our brain or is it the, you know, what are the elements of our technology that are really affecting our sleep? 
It's the blue light. It's two main factors. I would say the blue light is sending a signal that it's daytime, um, sending a signal to our brain to wake up, suppressing that melatonin. And so if you're timing the, that blue light at the wrong time, so before bedtime, then it may be impacting your sleep throughout the night. Now, I would say that the more light you can get during the day, um, that helps counteract how sensitive you are to light at night. So if you're able to, you know, go for a long, and I'm not trying to um, promote um, electronic devices before bed, but I just want to point that out, that if you are getting lots of light in those morning hours, it does counteract your sensitivity to light at night. But it's not just about the light from the screen, it's also about the content that you're looking at. So is it alerting, is it alarming? Are you looking at news feeds, you know, before bed? So it's not just about the light per se, but it's also about the content that you're looking at. Yeah. And especially during COVID, I mean, so many of the things that I saw people sharing, you know, were a lot of disturbing things, you know, not as hopeful. And so if you're falling asleep with that, you know, in your mind and waking up to it too, because so many people grab their devices first thing in the morning, they have them last thing at night, which I know I'm guilty of doing. My husband's guilty of doing it as well. But, you know, one of the things that we do as a family is really try and stay away from news, you know, at that, those, the first thing in the morning and late at night, just so that we, our brains are not wrapped around that. And it made a real big difference for our kids as well, because if you have the news playing in the background, you know, your younger kids are taking it in and interpreting it in mm -hmm. a different way. And I did notice with my youngest daughter, you know, when COVID first hit and we had the news on a little bit more than we I mean actually we didn't ever have the news on before while the kids were home but it definitely caused a lot of anxiety in her and and lots of just you know good questions good things to discuss but more than what a nine-year-old needs um, for sure in their life yeah no, so that's really good advice um, so let's go back to talking about athletes because of course it's you know i'm being selfish here um with wanting to know more do you find have you found that there's a difference in um when it comes to gender and sleep quality for athlete um, athletes Ooh, that's a good question um from from my current knowledge um there there aren't a lot of gender differences when it comes to athletes per se uh, in the general population, though, we see uh, women, uh, females needing more sleep, getting more sleep than males, and females suffering more from insomnia, so the inability to fall asleep quickly, waking up during the middle of the night, which could also be hormone-related. Uh, whereas males tend to have more sleep apnea occurring, so stopping breathing during the middle of the night, although women can also have that as well. Um, but yeah, when it comes to athletes, no, I, I don't think there's been anything out there uh, showing differences between the two, two genders. Okay, that's good to know. So I don't have to, you know, constantly say, well, it's because I'm a, you know, woman and more 
just look at it from the perspective of like, there's probably other things I can do to make my sleep better. Because I think it's so easy for people to want to blame one thing and, you know, and say it's because of that versus no, let's take some responsibility and like, let's get the blackout rooms. So let's turn down the temperature mm-hmm. in the room. Um, you know, all of the, get the custom made hearing um, earplugs and so on. So um, and so that's good to know. Now with, um, I love the tips that you gave to Dave, you know, when he was feeling that anxiety and potentially needing the um, sleep aids at night. But from, I can hear people listening to this podcast and hearing that you mentioned melatonin a lot and just say, well, I'll just go and get melatonin then if my body's not producing it. And what have you found around people taking melatonin? You know, should we do it for how long, how much? Um, and are there any downfalls, um, side effects of taking it? For melatonin, it's been shown to be useful for the night owls potentially, as well as people preparing for jet lag. But as an insomnia treatment or to help you fall asleep quicker to optimize sleep, the research, there's nothing there really. Mm -hmm. Um, So it depends on what you're using it for. Um, Yeah, if you're trying to use it to just help you sleep better, I wouldn't recommend it. It would be more in those situations where we want to shift the circadian rhythm to an earlier time. And... The thing about melatonin is that there was a recent study showing that what you're actually getting is because it's an unregulated substance in Canada and the US, um, that it could be anywhere between minus 55% of what it's saying on the bottle all the way up to 150% of what it's saying. And not to mention that also a lot of the samples that they did in this study showed um, contaminants such as serotonin. So you have to be really careful with what you're actually getting. And there was only a small percentage of the sample or the, the melatonin sample that actually the bottle was accurate at what it said it was so um that's another another consideration too is you have to be uh really careful about what you're actually getting now tart cherry juice may be an option for people to optimize sleep and enhance melatonin and there's been a few studies on that that it's been helpful for people with insomnia so tart cherry juice may be an option even kiwis, although, I mean, I think there's more research to be explored. There was one study with kiwis uh, per se that found that they were getting better quality sleep when they ate two kiwis before bedtime. So, so there are things to explore, but I think people really need to be aware of, um, is there something else underlying going on that uh, that you should really get checked out so if you're struggling to fall asleep multiple times per week within 30 minutes uh, if you're waking up during the middle of the night for 20 minutes or more and this is occurring very frequently if you're snoring if you're stopping breathing if your partner witnesses you stopping breathing and then you're tired and fatigued during the day this would be this isn't something that melatonin or tart cherry juice is going to fix. It's something that you need to get checked out from a sleep professional. 
Definitely. And um, I think that's really important that you stress that as well, because I went through a period after I had, we have a bunch of plant-based whole food restaurants. And so I was running them on my own. My husband was a full-time teacher in the Waldorf school system. So which kind of means you're working from seven in the morning till, you know, nine at night, sometimes, you know, parents can call if they have, you know, questions about their kids. And so we were busy. And of course, we had these three kids running restaurants, it was, you know, mayhem, and I, I burnt myself out, I burnt out my adrenals. Um, I developed, um, you know, heart arrhythmias, uh, probably because yeah. I wasn't eating well. Um, not that I wasn't eating well, it's just that even though I was getting all our meals from our restaurant, which are very healthy, I was not eating them until, you know, quite late in the day. So I wouldn't have breakfast, I'd skip lunch. I think I was living on like a couple cups of coffee a day and maybe a glass of wine at night back when I used to drink. And, um, you know, it was definitely a recipe for disaster and it did catch up with me. Uh, but that was one of the things that I experienced was heart arrhythmias. Um, my breathing was erratic at night, my husband would say, and I had very sensitive skin, like I was just inflamed, which my CRP levels showed that in my blood results. And, you know, this was coming from someone who knows a lot about health and it just really shows that you can burn yourself out when you're not, you know, taking, when you're going to bed like three in the morning, because I was staying up doing cash outs, you know, mm -hmm. until three in the morning. Um, and that's when that really scared me. And, um, and we did talk, I did talk to the doctor about, you know, seeing sleep specialists, which fortunately, though, just by, you know, implementing some of the things that you said, like I started going to bed at 10 at night, I made sure I ate my breakfast, lunch and dinner at regular hours. Um, I was making sure I was hydrated, like that was huge for me. And within six days, everything returned back to normal, my inflammatory markers came down. So it is easy to fix a lot of these things, but you do have to address them and take action, you know? And so when do you see, um, you know, and not all doctors will know to send somebody to a sleep specialist. And we have a lot of physicians that listen to our podcast as well. So for a doctor to refer someone to a sleep specialist, or can someone actually just make an appointment themselves? And when should it, they do that? Yeah, I think it depends on where you're at. Uh, I know in Alberta, you can self-refer to a sleep clinic. So it really depends on where you're at. Um, now, if there are any athletes out there, I, I helped develop the athlete sleep screening questionnaire. So, and there's, it's freely available online and maybe we can put a link in the show we notes will. Yeah. at uh, centerforsleep.com, but people can go there fill out the questionnaire and then it'll give individualized advice and let you know like, yes, there is a problem here. We should really seek help from a sleep professional. So that's an option for athletes out there. It hasn't been validated in the general public, but I think it could give you a good idea of um, if you really should try and see a sleep specialist. But I think, yeah, if, it's, if the sleep problems are occurring, um, multiple times per week. It's been going on for a month or more and it's really impacting your daily activities. I would say definitely um, get tested for a sleep disorder. Now going back to your story, I'm wondering because alcohol a lot of times can cause uh, sleep apnea symptoms where people will stop breathing during the middle of the mm -hmm. night because it's a relaxant, so it closes the airway. 
and makes more uh, sleep apnea more frequent. So I'm wondering if you then, if you stopped alcohol too at the same time when you made all of those changes as well, and maybe that, that could be another reason why your sleep was improved. Yeah. And that is something I'll never know because I did so many radical things all at mm -hmm. once, you know, and this is why we have a scientific method, which is there to test, you know, certain variables. And I had multiple variables, you know, I worked on my liver. I worked, I, you know, changed my diet fully to like no refined foods, no refined sugars, oils, or, you know, no salt. I did that. Um, you know, just ate fully like very well cooked foods um, so that it was easy on my digestion. So I looked at, I scanned my whole body and I really went from like, okay, if my digestion's keeping me up, what will we do? If sleep and, you know, poor sleep habits, what will we do? So I, you know, that's when going to bed at 10 o'clock at night, um, you know, came in, I got rid of the coffee. So, you know, was it the lack of, you know, the mm -hmm. excess caffeine in my body? in which I did have a DNA test a few years later, which actually showed my body does not clear caffeine as fast as it does um, for the general public. I stopped drinking, of course. And so, and not that I was even a big drinker, but even a glass of wine I noticed like would definitely affect my sleep. So I just got rid of all the alcohol. So lots of different variables, but the great thing is, is that within six days, you know, I, everything self-regulated and um, my heart arrhythmias went back to normal. I had a, had a test for that. Everything was great. So it does show the body's ability to recuperate and regenerate and heal itself quite fast. Right. But it's true. I like that point about alcohol. So for all the people out there who know that I'm a huge or no beer, which is just to see what would your life be like if you didn't drink for one year. Um, you know, it's uh, it's a fun little challenge, and I did it. And now, unfortunately, I've taken it into be like no more alcohol in my life, um, which is actually a good thing, and I don't miss it. So I encourage everybody to to see what that does for their sleep. Now, for the athletes, one of the questions that I have for you is about: so, does getting better quality sleep and quantity, does it really truly have a significant effect on their performance? Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, we do see improvements in reaction time. We see improvements in mood. We see quicker sprint times. So yes, it, it can have a, a very good impact on performance for sure. Um, I did, I did a study with speed skaters and we found that their um, time, so we looked at their, what they were doing normally at baseline and what their times were during the, the train or the, the trial. And then we implemented all of these sleep interventions, like trying to put in a nap, trying to get 30 minutes more of sleep per night also using blue light blocking glasses at night and found that their, um, their times were significantly improved. So, so yes, it can have an impact. Um, related to that, I think a tip for people could be leading into an important competition to get more sleep in the week or two before that competition. Mm -hmm. And the research has shown that your performance will be improved. So a lot of times athletes get a poor night's sleep before that really important competition. And if you're getting more sleep leading into the competition, it'll kind of counteract mm -hmm. the impact of that poor night's sleep 
right before the competition. So that's another, another tip for people is to bank sleep, um, leading into an important event. And it, even, it could even be a night shift that you're working, you know, any period of time where you're going to be experiencing sleep deprivation could be related to travel, although not as much right now, but um, any kind of those events that lead to more sleep deprivation, if you can get more sleep leading into those, you're going to be performing better during. Okay, that is really, I love this banked time piece because it actually makes me feel less anxious as well of, you know, the night before a big event because already, even though I'm not leaving till June 1st next year, I already just thinking about the night before, like, am I going to wake up in time? Is, you know, my body going to feel good? Do I have to have the perfect night's sleep the night before? <laughs> and, you know, or, and does the whole entire 70 days go to, you know, go to whatever hell if I don't get that good night's sleep before? So that is actually really, really good to to know as well and especially for a lot of people who even you know if you're an entrepreneur you work you know you work in any kind of job actually where you have to give a any type of performance it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be athletic you know just knowing that you can bank that sleep is good and so that should be a motivation for um everybody to want to do better um, so, you know, to wrap things up here, cause I know you have uh, a lot of work to do and you have to get back to your, your beautiful life of research, um, and helping athletes perform better. Um, what are some last minute tips that you have for people or what are some resources that, you know, I see that they can definitely do that sleep assessment, which I did, we're going to put that link for sure. But what are some other things that you would like to leave with athletes and non-athletes of our world? Yeah, so we talked a little bit about um, getting lots of light in the morning. I think that's that's super important for people to help regulate their circadian rhythms and improve sleep quality at night. Uh, we talked about limiting the alcohol, um, limiting caffeine. I know you kind of touched on that, but um, that I I find is is a, a good challenge for people to really not be dependent on you know that cup of coffee every morning so for me i think my youngest was six months and i decided to go decaf i decided to get off caffeine i had been in graduate school where i was consuming a ton of caffeine and um i just decided you know let's just give it a shot and so i went off caffeine it took a couple of weeks and I did it kind of gradually. So if I was really tired, I'd have a black tea, you know, in the afternoon. And then I kind of switched to maybe green tea and then I eliminated caffeine altogether. And it took a while yeah. and I was really tired during those two weeks without it. But after the fact, I, I slept amazing. So I think um, that may be something for people to try and experiment with. And currently I'm like for example, I think I had a green tea this morning um, and I alternate between green tea, herbal tea, and uh, half-calf coffee I'll have occasionally. So there's a kicking horse coffee here in Canada that has- So half, delicious. <laughs> yeah, it has half the caffeine and sometimes I'll, I'll do like decaf with that so then it's only quarter of caffeine. Um, because we know that it can stay in your system for a long time and especially depending on how you metabolize it as you had mentioned um you know a coffee at noon could still be 
the equivalent of a black tea right before bedtime and you would never really have a black tea before bedtime. So that's something to consider for people. I think also preparing your mind and body for sleep. So we need some unwinding down time. We need to wind down before bedtime. So taking that hour before bedtime to uh, take a warm bath or shower, which is shown to reduce the time it takes you to fall asleep. Um, potentially writing a to-do list. So you offload those thoughts off your mind, get them on paper. That helps people fall asleep quicker. Doing a gratitude journal, um, doing relaxation techniques. So breathing techniques such as the four, seven, eight breathing, where you breathe in for four seconds, hold your breath for seven, breathe out for eight and you repeat that four times can help activate that parasympathetic nervous system, which makes it easier to fall asleep. And then uh, the cognitive shuffle is another one that I really like. So you think of a word such as bedtime and then you imagine all the objects that you can starting with B. So ball, baby, bus, banana, when you can't think of any, any more objects, you go on to the next letter. So E, eagle, egg, ear. By the time you get to the end of the word, hopefully you'll be sound asleep. And so those are some techniques for people to incorporate into their wind down routine. Um, getting the electronics out of the bedroom. Um, for me, I, I store mine downstairs so I don't have my phone by me. Um, and I'll, if I need to set an alarm, I'll just set it on my watch. So um, usually my three-year-old's really good at getting me up yeah. on time. But um, yeah, taking that time to unwind, do have a pre-sleep routine to help prepare your mind and body for sleep is an important takeaway for people. Yeah, that is an amazing list. And what we're going to do is actually just create a downloadable PDF that just you know, mm, has all yeah. of that in there and linking to the assessment tool that you have as well. And um, just because those are all really beautiful things. I love the cognitive shuffle. I'm going to do that tonight for sure. I am going to get my electronics out of my room because it is a terrible habit that we have. Um, and it's, it's time to get those out. And I'm going to wean off the coffee because... Anytime I've ever stopped drinking coffee, I've had the best sleeps of my entire life. Like mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. and I wake up actually feeling so refreshed as opposed to waking up feeling like you need the coffee and it does take time. So I just have to let everybody know when you're, do not go cold Turkey when you're weaning off caffeine because of the fact you have receptor sites that have been developed in your brain to hold the caffeine molecules. And the minute your body doesn't receive that within 24 hours of your last cup of coffee or caffeine hit, then your brain will, it's like a drug withdrawal basically. And for a lot of people, it can be very, very difficult. You get migraines, um, you get quite anxious, you get angry, and it's important to just slowly wean off. And I've, the, I've read the research that shows about three weeks of weaning. So where you're doing mm -hmm. all of those techniques that you suggested and just taking it down a little bit per day over three weeks until you're completely off, then you won't have to necessarily experience any of those drug withdrawals because caffeine is a drug. Um, but you can then test and see how your sleep goes from there. 
you have been such a wealth of information. I am, uh, I'm going to be contacting you afterwards just to see how I can get you on my team. Um, I wasn't considering having a sleep specialist until I had done that podcast with Dave Proctor, but I think it's really important for any athletes that are out there or any, um, you know, very high functioning individuals, even in the business world where you have a lot of stress on your plate and you're, you know, I'm running five businesses, um, you know, doing a podcast, doing my training, it's a lot. And, and I realize after talking to you, the importance of having an expert on your team who can just remind you things that you can do so that in the end, you necessarily have to fall into, you know, any of the sleep aids that a lot of the doctors will prescribe without, before trying any of these other things mm -hmm. that you suggested. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on our show and taking the time. I know there's going to be so many people out there that are going to be forever grateful for this information that you shared with them. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Wonderful. So thanks everyone. Stay tuned for next week's podcast and definitely check out all the web links below so you can get in touch with uh, Dr. Amy Venter and all of the tools that she provides and, and her clinical assessments as well. So what an incredible podcast where Dr. Bender just gives us the straight up facts on how to improve our sleep. So if you're out there suffering from poor sleep, from insomnia, from waking up at two or three in the morning and having your brain turning and you can't turn it off, it's important to go back and implement all of these steps that Amy talks about in her show with us today. Now, you know what to do, folks. You need to share this podcast with your friends and family members that are also suffering from sleep because there are gold nuggets in this podcast that can help your loved ones get a better sleep starting today. So it's important to hit the share button, send it over via text or email, encourage your friends who don't know about podcasting. I'm still always shocked when I hear that people don't know that podcasts exist because really what podcasts are, it's just one more opportunity in the world to share information, to receive information, to learn, to study, to discover new tools and resources, or simply just be entertained. If you're already sleeping well, then you know, you know what to do, but note that there are many people in your community in your family, amongst your friends that are not sleeping well. So start the conversation with them today. Start asking questions. You might just even ask the next five people that you see, hey, how are you sleeping? Do you ever wake in the middle of the night? How do you find, um, you know, how easy or hard is it for you to fall asleep at night? Do you wake up feeling refreshed or tired? You know, instead of starting a conversation with, what do you do? you can actually start a conversation about sleep and then see where that takes you. And you'll discover new things about the people in and around you. And then you can be an activator in helping the people around you get better sleeps. Now, before we sign off today, uh, jump on over to Facebook and sign up for our 22 million strong training tribe, because that's where you can follow my training as I run and cycle across Canada and get ready for that tour that's coming up on June 1st next year. You can also head over to our um, fundraiser campaign where we are raising funds this, that will enable me to stop and meet with Indigenous communities, with BIPOC communities across Canada, with physicians, with 
youth to help and to help people remember that food is medicine. So it is a big endeavor. I'll be doing this across 75 days. It's going to take a lot of resources, tools, people to help me get across Canada. Um, I'm going to be doing this on my own, cycling and biking, but if you cycling and running, but if you want to join me, it's time to start training today. So I've hired one of the best endurance athletes, Chris Hout, and one of the best endurance nutritionists. That's Lucky Seguin and from Fit Vegan. So I have these two incredible coaches that are, that are helping me every single day, every single month, get ready for this tour. And I'm sharing their training program with you for free. And what's happened as a result of doing this is that we have people that have never ridden a bike before, that have never walked more than a kilometer, that have never run more than a kilometer, who are out there, running and cycling for hours a day and hours a week. And it's incredible to see. We have um, Kath Faraci on Salt Spring Island. She's actually put a group of women together. She's gathered this tribe and they're out every single day training six days a week. Some of those people in her group, amazing women, have never exercised before and they're out there moving their bodies every single day, running for sometimes two to two and a half, three hours, biking from anywhere from one to five hours is what they're up to now when just eight or nine weeks ago, um, they weren't doing anything like this. So jump on over to our 22 million strong training tribe on Facebook and get access to my plan and follow me, join me. And so we can collectively learn together and help people all across Canada learn about food as medicine and to reverse the chronic degenerative diseases. So thanks for listening. Thanks for being on our show today. Stay tuned for next week's episode. It has been a pleasure. Have an incredible week. Bye, everyone.